Welcome to Hancock Talks, your source for insights about life insurance trends and opportunities with a focus on tactics that can help drive your sales. This podcast is for financial professional use only. It is not intended for use with the public. This material is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide advice. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. Please listen to the important disclosures at the end of this podcast. Now, let's get started with John Hancock's Vice President of Sales Enablement and your host, Karen Egan. Welcome to Hancock Talks, and thanks for being with us today. We are excited to have a guest host with us, John Snyder, JD, who is an Assistant Vice President of Advanced Planning here at John Hancock. John will be interviewing our special guest, Martin Shankman. Martin Shankman, CPA, MBA, PFS, AEP, and JD, is an attorney in private practice in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and New York City, practicing at Shankman Law in the areas of estate planning, tax planning, closely held business taxation, business transactions, and estate administration. A widely quoted expert on tax matters, Mr. Shankman is a regular source for numerous financial and business publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Fortune Magazine, Money Magazine, the New York Times, and others. He has appeared as a tax expert on numerous television and cable television shows. He's a frequent guest on radio talk shows throughout the country and has a regular weekly radio show on Money Matters Financial Network. Marty has also authored 42 books and more than 1,000 articles. So, John, take it away. I'm excited to be here today, Karen, to have a lively discussion with Marty about intergenerational split dollar and the Levine case. Welcome, Marty. Pleasure to be here. Marty, most of our listeners are familiar with both economic benefit regime split dollar and loan regime split dollar, and are aware of how and why intergenerational split dollar is sometimes used as a part of a family's estate and business planning solutions. John Hancock has summarized the facts and holdings of the tax court's decision in the Levine economic benefit regime intergenerational split dollar case, in our March 2022 Central Intelligence piece. For those listeners who would like a refresher on that background content, Karen will remind listeners at the end of this podcast how to obtain that information. In the limited time we have in this podcast, Marty, we would like to focus on the practical lessons estate planning attorneys and other financial professionals can learn from the Levine case. First, the taxpayer retained enough in assets outside of this planning strategy to meet her lifetime needs and only committed excess capital to the intergenerational split dollar strategy. Why is it good planning generally to only use excess capital for legacy planning strategies? And why was that important in the Levine decision? Great question. And I think the answer to that question in the very topic itself is what will not only differentiate better planning from less better planning from an economic perspective, but from a success in a tax perspective. Let me give an example. If a client makes a transfer of assets to a trust in order to safeguard exemption, and we are all going to see a lot of that happening between now and the end of 2025 because the exemption is cut by half in 2025, does the client have enough financial resources to live on 
for their lifestyle expenses after the transfer. The reality is that most estate planning, all estate planning documents for sure, but even much of the planning, most of the planning is done by attorneys. Few attorneys have the wherewithal to really go out and do a budget and financial forecast. I, as an attorney, don't do it. I uniformly, 100% of the time, tell all of my clients, have your wealth advisor, your insurance consultant, your accountant, have one of your financial advisors on the team do a forecast based on a real budget. If that's done, and, and here's something, it wasn't in the Levine case, but it's it's common to most of planning. One of the ways that the IRS overturns a lot of planning is by saying that there was an implied agreement between the trustee and the donor, the client, the taxpayer about distributions. Now, if you have Uncle Joe or Aunt Jane as a trustee and you transfer 60% of your wealth to a trust and then you start taking distributions in a year or two, it becomes pretty easy for the IRS or a creditor right? People forget that the same same concerns apply to a creditor attacking the plan. Can argue you had an applied agreement with the trustee. But in the Levine case, the planners, the attorney whose name was Swanson, uh, I don't know if it was he or somebody else on the team, maybe it was the insurance consultant that doesn't say, did forecasting to show or some type of analysis to show that it was only excess capital, excess funds, not the funds Mrs. Levine needed for her lifestyle expenses. So that is a great way to deflect challenges by the IRS or creditor that there was an implied agreement. It shows that the planning is not infringing on basic lifestyle expenses. And it's not just a tax and asset protection benefit. It gives the clients peace of mind. No client is comfortable making large wealth transfers. Showing them financially with some modeling, financial modeling, that they're going to be okay is really hugely important. And for those in the financial services industry in general, this is a huge opportunity to go to estate planning attorneys and say, listen, the Levine case said it was only excess assets. The court was really impressed that that analysis was done. Can I help you do that on clients we're working on? It's a great opportunity to help the client, protect the attorney, protect the integrity of the plan. And what I think people will see in many cases when that analysis is done, you may come back to the client and say, listen, you can transfer more assets. Or in some cases, very carefully, maybe you should transfer a little less. And by the way, when the planners are doing that kind of financial analysis to determine excess assets, inherent in that analysis is a determination of insurance needs. Because if I do that analysis and find, okay, we have enough money reserved, but what if there's a premature death, like in non-reciprocal slats, et cetera? So the Levine court seized on that. I think it's a critical component to the success of the case. Thank you so much for those observations. Let's get into some more specific things that we can learn from the Levine decision. In the case, the taxpayer decedent had no right to terminate the split dollar arrangement, either alone or together with another person. Why was it important that an independent trustee acting in a fiduciary capacity on behalf of the islet held the sole right to terminate the split dollar arrangement? Uh, It's another great question. And your question is the differentiation between, say, the Cahill case, which was a decided victory for the IRS and a decided defeat for the taxpayer, 
in the Levine case that was a taxpayer victory. Let me use Cahill to contrast what happened in Levine to really emphasize the point. And I also want to point out a potential Achilles heel in the planning, because it's not enough for professionals to merely read what Levine's case discussion says, but you want to go beyond that where you can and extrapolate lessons so we can plan even safer going forward. In the Cahill case, the um, son who was an agent under a power of attorney for uh, the parent, in conjunction with the cousin, who was also the, the son's business partner, together, they could terminate the split dollar arrangement because the son was acting as agent on behalf of the parent. It was the parent in conjunction with the trustee of the insurance trust they could terminate the split dollar arrangement. The arrangement required, and this was the fatal flaw in Cahill, that both had to terminate the agreement. That gave a power or control over the split dollar arrangement to, in effect, the decedent. It destroyed the entire plan because now the decedent, in conjunction with, and code section 2036A2, in conjunction with another could unravel the plan. And that's why the values were back in the estate. In smart, clever, good planning contrast to that, but we can do better. And I'm going to tell you how in a second. In the Levine case, the they did two things that were clever. And I think there's important lessons in each of them. First, it was, and I'm blanking on the name, but there was a family, friend, business partner, advisor, uh, Larson. Larson. There, there's the name, Larson, yes. That was the sole insurance trustee of the insurance trust. Larson alone had the sole authority to terminate the arrangement. Neither the decedent nor the agent under the decedent's power of attorney had any say whatsoever. And if you ask me for a single fact that was critical to finding a favorable result in Levine versus Cahill, that question that you asked, this one fact was the key. Only Larson as the independent insurance trustee, and I think it was actually called investment committee, if you're reading the case, had that authority. So you clearly broke this 2036A2 string of the decedent in conjunction with the decedent had no ability whatsoever legally to terminate it. Now, there's another little piece here that was quite important. The court was very impressed. And honestly, it's something that I try to do as a default in my planning. Many advisors don't. And I, I, I think the Levine case is, is, is really, it, it, it tells you why to do what I'm going to say. They named an independent administrative trust company to be the general and administrative trustee of the trust. It was what's called a directed trust. In other words, the investment committee directed the institutional trustee as to investments to make such as insurance. Very common structure. I use it probably in the majority of trusts that I do. And what was done well was the court was incredibly impressed with the fact that they used an independent institutional trustee that infuses into the plan significant independence and professionalism. And by the way, it didn't mean the institution got involved in the insurance decision making. Larson, as the independent advisor, had sole responsibility for that. So there were two components, and forgive me for being long-winded, but but there's a lot of depth. You ask questions that have lots of tentacles and, and facets to them. 
But one, you had Larson as an independent trustee with no involvement by the decedent or an agent by the decedent. Second, they named an independent institutional trustee. I like to do that on any significant plan that I do because I think it's a great safeguard. The third piece, which is where I think we can do a better job than what was done in Levine, and if people listening to this are having input into the structuring of a plan, any plan, not just a split dollar economic benefit plan, but any kind of estate plan, this is important. In the Levine case, Larson was also a co-agent with two of the kids on Mrs. Levine's durable power of attorney. And he was the independent investment committee, or I'll call it insurance trustee of the islet of the irrevocable life insurance trust. I would encourage when planners are, are formulating a plan, and even if you have a plan that's out there that doesn't have this, it probably can be changed. I wouldn't want to have the person that's the investment committee, Larson, the independent insurance trustee, also be a co-agent under the decedents and at the time, the Mrs. Levine's durable power of attorney. I would break that chain, have somebody independent. So if you're doing a plan like this, what I would do if, if everyone is still alive, I would have uh, Larson resign as a co-agent and name a successor that has nothing to do with the person who's a trustee of the insurance trust. So just to, to summarize very quickly, the key to the victory in Levine was that Larson is an independent person who is, by the way, and this is also important, sophisticated from a business perspective. It wasn't like he was a straw person for somebody else. He had significant business acumen, was the sole person making the decisions. Decedent wasn't. We can do a little better than they did in the Levine case by making sure that that person doesn't also serve in another fiduciary role like co-agent under a power of attorney. Name an independent institutional trustee. It's a wonderful way. The court was incredibly impressed. And I think the court mentioned it at least two different times that they were so impressed that they had an independent institutional trustee. Thank you for that detail, Marty. That's great information for our listeners. Taking a look at the last thread there, the court also focused on the identity of the trustees as well as the beneficiaries. Do you have any additional comments about why it's important not to have the same person on both sides of the transaction as to both trustees and beneficiaries? Another great question, and you're hitting to the heart of why Levine was victorious and why Cahill was, was a taxpayer loss. There's really two pieces to that. Let me do the first part real quick because we've kind of already done it. It's critical to have independence of the trustee because an independent trustee where there's no involvement by the decedent, by the taxpayer, is what won the day in the Levine case. Larson is an independent insurance trustee and again called the investment committee had the sole authority to terminate the split dollar agreement. The decedent had no rights to do so. But as I explained earlier, we can do that a little better by not having any overlap. And that's something people should be very mindful of. The IRS's attack in Levine tried to argue that there was some connection that Larson was on both sides. And the, the taxpayer was a bit lucky that that went their way. So we can do that one better. But the second part of the question you asked is another very significant consideration, which doesn't happen enough in planning. And that is that there was a different set of beneficiaries under Mrs. Levine's basic estate plan and under the insurance trust. And the court found that significant. Let me explain. Under her estate plan, it was the children who were the beneficiaries. 
The insurance trust, and it makes sense if it was a GST or generation skipping transfer trust, most likely. Uh, and I don't remember if the court said that. I'm just assuming the grandchildren were beneficiaries. So on one side, the insurance trust, you had children and grandchildren as beneficiaries. On the other side, just the children. So Larson owed, and the court made note of this. It was also impressed with this. Larson owed a fiduciary responsibility to a different set of beneficiaries than those who would have taken under the will. And that is meaningful. How do we do, how might we address this in practice? Maybe you add an aunt, another family member, a charity, some other beneficiaries that are independent under the insurance trust to make it a bit different than under the will. Here it was very substantively meaningful, and the court noted that Larson owed a fiduciary responsibility to different people. So those are two very significant points in constructing and formulating a plan to make it respected. It may, I say, by the way, when you get into more complex plans, this was sort of a one-dimensional plan with just the split dollar arrangement and insurance trust, but we often see much more complex plans. I often will make different trustees, use an institutional trustee in Alaska on one trust, an institutional trustee in Delaware on another trust, and so on to differentiate them. I love the idea of building in different beneficiaries, but that gets a little bit difficult in some cases, depending on what the client's goals are. But those are two very valuable lessons on how we structure plans in a post-Levine world. Thank you. It's great to hear your passion for these topics as you go through your commentary. And let's turn what to What could be another... more exciting than estate planning? Is there anything more exciting than estate planning? I don't think so. And for our (laughs) listeners, if you haven't had a chance to read the decision, the tax court did a phenomenal job in its discussion. There's humor. Uh, It it is a really exciting and fun case to read. So I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, Let's turn to another matter. Why was it important in Levine that the islet owned the policies from the beginning and that the taxpayer decedent, or in this case, her revocable trust, never owned the life insurance policies, nor did she hold any interest in the policies under the split dollar documents. When we devise, plan, structure any type of insurance plan, the preferable approach wherever possible is to have the islet buy the policy from inception. You want to avoid any strings, any control, any rights that the insured, the the future decedent will have in that policy. By having it owned from inception by the trust, What was left that Mrs. Levine transferred in the Levine case? She transferred under the economic benefit advance. She advanced funds to the islet in exchange for the rights that she had under this economic benefit contract, the agreement. She never had a right in the insurance policies. Had they found a string to the insurance policies, had it, and and we've all seen this happen where, you know, because somebody's rushing to get something done to get a policy in place before a birthday, they just have the insured, the person own the policies, and then they can transfer them to a trust. If she had had any rights in that insurance policy or policies, I'm sorry, plural, it would have been much more difficult to say that she didn't have an interest or a string or a right to the cash value of the policies. She never had any interest in it. The only thing she did was she transferred the cash and got back her her contractual rights under the split dollar economic benefit regime documentation. And that was very important to the case. 
Great. And for our listeners, the strings that Marty's talking about there in this case are in code sections 2036 to 2038. Uh, Code section 2042, as the court points out, is dealing with incidents of ownership on the life of the insured. And in this case, it wasn't generation one who was the insured. Let's uh, turn our attention next to the valuation reduction or discount on the recovery right that the parties settled for in the Levine case. That settled amount was far less than the discount the taxpayer unsuccessfully claimed in the Cahill decision. Can you offer a general perspective on when a discount might be appropriate and whether there's a reasonable discount range to consider based on the facts of the case? And are there also potential disadvantages to claiming a valuation discount on the receivable a client and the client's planning professionals should consider? So, so let me let me make a general comment first. Morissette, Cahill, now Levine, and I understand there's other cases pending. What all these cases focused on was taking a large amount of cash in, in Levine, call it six million, give or take, and putting a split dollar structure around it to discount or reduce the value of what was remaining in the decedent's estate. In Cahill, I believe the the valuation reduction they argued for was like 98%. It was really significant. And I think that, that that was part of the negative perception the court had in Cahill. Now, in Levine, it was very significant, but not nearly as significant as Cahill, but it was something like two-thirds discount from roughly six million to I think two, two and a half million. I, I forget the exact numbers. So it was still a very meaningful discount. First, I think it's very important for practitioners uh, when they're structuring planning to understand that the discount is what the IRS is endeavored to attack, but that is not inherent in every split dollar plan. So you may have lots of other reasons to structure a split dollar plan separate and apart from just the discount. These cases have all focused on these significant discounts. And it seems pretty clear that the IRS doesn't like these substantial discounts and is attacking all of these cases. And by the way, and this is really important, and I apologize if I'm jumping ahead, but it's important as to the discount. That discount may have a, a ripple effect, another consequence that we need to be mindful of. If Mrs. Levine or somebody in another case that somebody's planning makes a transfer of $6 million, whatever the amount is, pursuant to a split dollar agreement and has just the rights under the split dollar agreement. So in the Levine case, for for simplicity's sake, say she transferred $6 million of cash to the islet and had rights that were then valued at $2 million. Did she just make a $4 million gift? That's an issue that needs to be thought about and, and, and clients undertaking this planning cautioned about because that may be the next avenue of attack. We need to be mindful that there could be an argument that there was a gift made on the structuring of this plan. Now, you asked about the valuation. I'm not an appraiser and I want to stay in my swim lane, but you go out and you hire a professional independent appraisal firm. And I would suggest you get a firm that has valued these arrangements many times so they understand the economics of it. And I'm going to say this wrong because again, I'm not an appraiser, but conceptually what's happening is there's a present value 
of the future payment. So if the split dollar arrangement ends when the insured dies, and in the, the case of the Levines, it was the children, if they could live 40 years, so in exchange for the advance that Mrs. Levine made, there's going to be a payment that is anticipated at the end of the life expectancy of the kids discounted back. I, I, I'm not really uh, an appraiser, as I said, but conceptually, that's the idea as to why there is a significant reduction. But again, be alert and caution clients about a potential gift argument by the IRS in the future. And that's why I tried to differentiate split dollar planning, which so long as you follow the cookbooks of the regs and the law, you should be fine. And the value of these discounts, which the IRS is clearly trying to attack, and certainly post-Levine, and my understanding is there's some other cases pending, they're going to pursue this under the 2036, 2038, 2703, and probably as well gift arguments. And they're probably going to also pursue future cases with this issue of what the fiduciary obligations of people involved are. And I think that if there was an identical case to Levine, the IRS, the service, will argue very strongly that Larson was also an agent under the power of attorney and therefore had some conflicting duties. So we we need to be careful on that. Thank you. There's so much for the planning team to consider. The tax court was clearly impressed with the client's estate planning attorney and the careful planning that had been done. Can you comment further on why thoughtful planning and attention to detail is so important? and why clients should be diligent in selecting qualified, competent legal counsel? I think that's a great question. And let me say, to emphasize a comment you made earlier, which is very important when you recommended that people read the Levine case. I think you should not just read the Levine case. Go back a second time and read the case exactly for the question that you just posed. Read the case looking at all comments that the court made as to what made planning in Levine succeed. And there's all it's it's a phenomenal roadmap, not just for economic benefit split dollar, but I would suggest for any kind of insurance plan or estate plan. And yes, the court commented repeatedly. I wish I had a court case quoting me like this. A court, the court commented repeatedly about the methodical nature of what the client did. And what I thought was incredibly phenomenal is inherent in the court's comments were almost recommendations on how we should practice. And when a client gets resistant, which they probably do in most cases, to what Swanson, the attorney in Levine, did, bring out that Levine case and show them what the court said. So, for example, the court commented that Swanson, the attorney, wrote memos. He even did a PowerPoint to explain to the clients what the plan was. Why is that important? Why? Because it showed the clients understood what was going on. It showed the family knew what they were doing. That's critical. Nobody should help a client do a plan that they don't, at least in big picture, understand. Does a client have to understand the in the weeds nuances of a generation skipping transfer tax allocation? I don't think so. Should they understand the concept that a trust could go on and not be included in an estate for generations to come? Yes. The big picture they should understand, put a memo together, put a PowerPoint together. And by the way, when attorneys are involved in this type of planning, 
Those comments from the Levine case are exactly what attorneys should be doing to protect themselves, because a number of the recent legal malpractice cases hinge on the client saying, gee, the attorney didn't tell me. In Levine, the court said, do a memo, do a PowerPoint, take the time and explain to the client what's going on. So when clients balk at, gee, I don't want to pay this lawyer and this accountant or whatever to do a a memo or to, to, to write more, the court wants you to do that. Very important. The court was impressed with the thought given to the plan, independent institutional trustee, independent insurance trustee, and again, called the investment committee, but it just, I I think insurance trustee is just a clearer term. They took the time to do it. You earlier asked me about only transferring what they called excess assets. Inherent is that is somebody thought about financial modeling, whether they did a model or not, I don't know. But boy, what a benefit to get some forecasts and an insurance analysis done for every large wealth transfer to show that the client doesn't need the transfer or the donor doesn't need access to that money to pay for uh, food and lifestyle expenses. So they were thorough and methodical through so many different components of the plan. And by the way, when we as planners engage in a plan with a client, it seems that too often clients don't want to spend the money, don't want to have the complexity. But the Levine case said, yes, that those little extra expenditures to get it done methodically, to document everything, that makes the plan more defensible. And I think that's what we should all strive for on any kind of plan. Thank you so much, Marty. You are such a wealth of knowledge and information. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today. It's been a true honor having you on Hancock Talks. Would you like to share any closing thoughts with our listeners today? I just think when I read Levine, I feel like vindicated because I've encouraged clients to spend the extra few dollars and have institutional administrative trustees. Uh, They don't make investment decisions in a directed trust structure. I think it makes a world of sense Uh, in the Levine case. And and we didn't talk about it, and I don't really hear anyone talking about it. They used a trust-friendly jurisdiction, in that case, South Dakota. But there's a number of jurisdictions around the country that are very trust-friendly, trust-favorable. I try to encourage as a default in my planning to get clients to use better jurisdictions. I think inherent in the concept of excess assets and so on and so forth, you had a planning team. I'm a zealous, zealous believer in a collaborative planning team where you have an estate planning attorney, perhaps a general practice or corporate attorney, an accountant, a financial expert, an insurance consultant. When we collaborate as a team, that's inherent in what happened, I believe, in in the Levine case. And that's another take-home lesson, collaborative team effort, well-documented, thoughtfully done so the client understands it, Uh, trust-friendly jurisdiction, independent institutional trustee. These are the hallmarks of what I think are good, solid planning for any type of plan. And those are great take-home lessons. I think the lessons of the Levine case, and I know we said this earlier, but I think it's, it's, it's so fundamental and so important. The lessons of the Levine case affect all planning. They're great instructions for how to do planning well. And I encourage everyone to think about that. Thank you so much, Marty, for all the information today. You've given our listeners wonderful takeaways. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And now Karen's going to give us some information on where to go to get more information. 
We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Hancock Talks. For more resources on today's topic, visit jhsaleshub.com and search for Levine or search more broadly for Split Dollar. Mr. Shankman also has additional commentary on the Levine decision available at shankmanlaw.com. And don't forget, download and subscribe to the show to get new episodes as they become available. Thanks for listening. Trust should be drafted by an attorney familiar with such matters in order to take into account income and estate tax laws, including the generation skipping tax. Failure to do so could result in adverse tax treatment of trust proceeds. There can be costs associated with drafting a trust. Comments on taxation are based on John Hancock's understanding of current tax law, which is subject to change. No legal, tax, or accounting advice can be given by John Hancock, its agents, employees, or licensed agents. Prospective purchasers should consult their tax professionals for details. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of John Hancock. Life insurance products are issued by John Hancock Life Insurance Company USA, Boston Mass 02116, not licensed in New York, and John Hancock Life Insurance Company of New York, Valhalla, New York 10595. This recorded material may have been recorded to support the promotion or marketing of the topics addressed in this recorded material. Individuals interested in the topics discussed should consult with independent professionals to examine legal, tax, accounting, or financial aspects of these topics. MLINY 0428226581.